Well, it's actually rather surprising. I wasn't looking for this, but they just kind of arose out of seemingly nowhere. That is, these uncanny thematic connections between what seem like two very different contexts. Context number one being the context of Leviticus, written to a people thousands of years ago in a different culture, in a different time, with different everything. But connections between that and contemporary American culture, not just contemporary American culture, contemporary American pop culture. I wasn't looking for these connections, but these connections just started popping up. I mentioned one a few weeks ago, the uh, lead track off of Bieber's sixth studio album, uh, Holy, right? There's that theme. Like, it's a very religious language, but somehow that song got some traction, and it was like, wow, today in the 21st century, America, people were singing and thinking about this idea of holy. Remember the... Um, the chorus from that song even uses that word holy in a similar manner that the Bible uses it. Do you remember the chorus? The way you hold me, hold me, hold me, hold me, hold me, it feels so holy, 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 holy. And we talked briefly, and we talked about this back in September, how that word holy is repeated in Scripture, because that's how you emphasize God's holiness. But there's another connection between that idea of holiness and pop culture today that came up even more recently. It's a, it's a popular song uh, by Sam Smith featuring uh, Kate Petros, and it's this lead single from his album that's forthcoming next year. And the title of this song, again, it's not language we typically use in American pop culture vernacular, but it's there. It's unholy. And so it's interesting how these twin themes of holy and unholy, which are so bound to the Levitical theme, uh, as we think about God being holy, and how is he going to dwell amongst people who are unholy? Those twin themes just kind of pop up today in modern, modern American pop culture. And again, that does remind us of those themes in Leviticus. How is God, who is a holy God, he's other than, he's pure, he's righteous, how is he going to dwell amongst the people who are unholy? That's what the book of Leviticus is about. That's what we see here in Leviticus, this idea of how is God going to dwell, holy as he is, amongst people who are unholy. And not only that, there is not only these, this kind of prescription for God's people thousands of years ago of how God, who is holy, is going to dwell amongst people who are unholy. There's also a call on the people to be holy, to be set apart, to be different from the culture. And that's true in a variety of ways. The relationships, uh, how they approach God, but even as we'll see this week, how they treat time. Now that might seem kind of odd, like we get, oh, relationships, we get worship, how they approach God. But does God really care about our time? And is there a way that you're called as a follower of God to use your time differently than the surrounding world? That seems kind of niche, right? Well, actually, it's a big focus of our text this morning. We're continuing our, our series of the book of Leviticus. We're going to land in chapter 23 this morning. Uh, the text has already been read by Stan, but if you want to follow along, you can open your Bible in the Pew Bibles, page 105. We'll skim uh, not only 23, but also some future chapters as well, so it might be uh, helpful to have it in front of you. In Ex Leviticus 23, it's talking about all these different appointed festivals, and it begins with something that was a weekly mm, ritual, if you will, for the people of God, and it's this idea of Sabbath. Let me just review it one more time, verse 3, and then we'll tease out some ideas here. There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work. Wherever you live, it is a Sabbath of the Lord. So in this text, we see an affirmation, yes, of work. It begins, there are six days you, when you may work. That's really important. You need to be good stewards of your time, and there's six days in which you may work, and you should work there. 
But that's not all this text says. There's a counterbalance as well. There's an affirmation of work, but there's also, and actually twice in the text, there's an affirmation not only of work, but twice of rest, because the text continues. In contrast to that first phrase, yes, work six days, but the seventh day is to be a day of Sabbath rest. And as if, you, as if you miss this, the text continues, you are not to do any work on that day. It's a Sabbath to the Lord. So in chapter 23, verse 3, we see this affirmation, yes, of work. You ought to work six days, but there's one day, the seventh day, it's a day of rest. You must not do any work on that day. But then it continues, and this is where the Sabbath becomes unique. It is, is, it is a Sabbath to the Lord. In other words, it would be wrong for you just to kind of stop right here and tune out and say, well, the Bible says I, says I, I should take a vacation. I'm just going to take a vacation. That would be incomplete because your resting is to the Lord. You can have a vacation that's completely self-centered and really not in line with what a Sabbath is. A Sabbath is a day, yes, of rest in which you do no work, but it's also a Sabbath to the Lord. It's God-centered. It's, he's the focal point. And in fact, when you look at the Scripture and the Sabbath idea, there's two kind of controlling texts that help inform what the Sabbath is. And the first is, simp- is very simply a God's pattern of rest in the very beginning, like the very beginning, namely in creation. So, for example, let's go back to Genesis 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work, verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So God's people are to rest, to not work on that seventh day, in part because that's what God does. That's his model that you see at the very beginning in creation. Now, what is God's pattern of rest here? It's not simply ceasing from his labor. It's not simply taking a break. You see that. Stop and rest. You saw that in Genesis 2. But there's more. In Genesis 1, to model God's Sabbath rest, there's something else. God saw that all he had made, and it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. There is a delighting by God. There's an enjoyment of God in what he has made here. So the biblical understanding of Sabbath, yes, it's it's modeled after God's model of Sabbath, God's action of Sabbath in the very beginning in which he stops and he rests, but he also delights. He says it was very good. There's a qualitative evaluation and enjoyment of the work that he has done here. It's an affirmation of the goodness of what he's done. The picture of God here in that first Sabbath, it's not like, glad I got that done with. No, it's, it's him stepping back, evaluating his work, and, and having delight in the work that he has done. So in other words, Sabbath is not simply stopping and ceasing your labor, but modeling after God's picture of Sabbath and creation is stopping, resting, and delighting in, in the goodness of this creation here. It, it's a gift. It's a time to enjoy and delight in God's creation. In Leviticus 23, don't miss the context here. In Leviticus 23, it's a, it's a bunch of appointed festivals. Like, it's a happy chapter, and part of that happiness is stopping and resting and delighting in what God has done in his creation. It's a, it's a good thing here. So, if that's what Sabbath is, at least in part, it's stopping and resting and delighting in creation, let's ask a question. Why don't we rest? Because I think on the surface, we're all like, yo, that's good. I can take some of that. I'd like some rest, and I'll even make it to the Lord. But honestly, you leave here today, and we're back in the rat race and we're not going to rest. Why? Let me give five reasons why we don't like to rest, if we're really honest. Number one, 
or kind of the overarching reason is I'm just too busy. Like this would be good. Maybe when I retire, I'll rest. Or maybe when I'm done high school, college, grad school, etc. Then I'll rest. And so we say we don't rest because we're too busy. But let's go a little bit deeper. Underneath that, um, that phrase, I'm too busy, why really don't we rest? Why are we always so busy? Number one, insecurity. Maybe you say yes too often. Well, why do you say yes so often? So people will like me because I'm insecure and, and they're not going to like me if I say no. But on the flip side, if I do whatever they say, they'll like me. So maybe underlying all your busyness is you're just insecure and you just say yes too often to please people. Or maybe you're so busy because of self-justification. Look at me. I'm so busy and therefore important. Because in our culture, in our context, busy people are important and important people are busy. Have you ever had a time in your life when you actually weren't that busy and you felt guilty? And so you just tried to do some things to make yourself feel better? Have you ever felt good when you're really busy? Like, oh, I'm really important. I remember there's one summer in, in college when I was actually kind of busy. I had these opportunities to travel. And I remember, like, kind of moving into adulthood. And I was talking to my friends. And I was like, oh, I can't know if I can make that work because I'm just so busy. I have to fly off to here and do this. And I just remember feeling back then, oh, I'm so busy. Therefore, I must be important. I was just kind of self-justifying it because I felt like, oh, I'm so busy and important because important people are busy. This justifies my reason for existence because I'm a busy person. One author says this, Ours is a society that pegs status to overachievement. We can't help but admiring workaholics. There is a lore, a legend, I don't know if this is true or not, about one of the professors in grad school that when he was pursuing his PhD, he slept every other night. And there was kind of this aura around of like, wow, PhD, that's what you did. And this is kind of like, wow. Um, we can't help but admiring workaholics. We like to self-justify. I have a reason for existing because I'm just so busy, and therefore I'm important, and therefore I, I should be alive. Number three, one of the reasons we're so busy is maybe just distrust. I can't trust God to always meet my needs, so I always need to work and never rest. But look at me, I can trust myself. Like, it's all on my shoulders. I can't trust God, so i got to kind of move in, and I can trust myself. I'll, I'll, I'll bring it home. If I don't work, I don't eat, I don't live. It's interesting. If there's anyone who could have maybe had this as an appropriate response or a plausible result, response would be the, the Israelites here. I mean, they're moving into a whole new land, and they don't know how everything works here. And so it would seem like, oh, well, for now, you should just work all the time because you're not sure how everything works here. You've got to feed yourself. There's no grocery store. There's so much to do here. You should work 24-7. That's not what God says. God says, hey, work six days, but you need to take a break. On the seventh day, you need to rest. They have to trust God during that time. Fourth, maybe we have a God complex. I'm busy because I'm better than God. He rested on the seventh day, but not me. I'm a better God than God. Look at me. Look how great I am. The story told of a young youth pastor who, when he started working at his job, uh, an older man came to him and said, hey, you need to work every day. Because the devil doesn't take any breaks. And in response, the youth pastor simply said, well, you know, the devil's not my role model. God is. And he rested. And there's something true there. God's our role model. He rested. And so we rest in part because of the example he gives us in the very beginning. You're not God. 
Fifth and finally, maybe you are so busy because of materialism. Like you just have to be on this, on this hamster wheel, earning and churning and money because you need to buy this and you need to buy that. And to do all these things that you want to have or to do, you need to make extra money. Therefore, you just never stop working. So those might be some reasons we're so busy. But hopefully you see a, a, a thread that's woven through all of them. Yes, I'm busy, but maybe because we're busy because of this. But as you go deeper and deeper down, it's really more of a heart issue than anything else. In other words, the goal this morning is not to help you simply think, how can I be more productive? What productivity hack do I need to employ right now? How do I make more spreadsheets to make my, my life more linear and make it work? Rather, the goal this morning, in part, is to go deeper and think about our heart. We don't rest because we're idolaters. We're insecure. We value what people think about us more than what God thinks about us. So therefore, we always work to please people. Or maybe self-justification. Christ isn't justifying me. Therefore, I need to do it myself. Or distrust. God's not really faithful. He might say he is, but I can't really count on him. I got to count on me. Or maybe it's a God complex. God simply is not God. Or finally, maybe it's materialism. These things are my God. At the root of all this is a heart, a disposition in our heart which turns away from God, and therefore we're busy, and therefore we say we can't rest. So we want to peel the, 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 the layers away here. Like, you might be sitting here this morning and be like, okay, we need to rest, but I can't rest because I'm so busy, period. I want to invite you to go deeper. Why are you so busy? What's driving, what's motivating your busyness all the time? And then what's driving that? Could it be something in your heart that you're holding and desiring and cherishing and delighting in more than God? And maybe that is unwittingly, unconsciously driving you to be so busy such that when God calls you to rest, you got to take a pass. By resting, we start to break that chain. Another controlling text that helps us understand what rest is and what Sabbath is is not only the creation account, but the Exodus account. In Deuteronomy, here's what God says, speaking again about rest and the Sabbath, but look at the framework here this time. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Remember, here's the new data point, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, in light of all that, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. One author says this, anyone who overworks is really a slave. Anyone who cannot rest from work is a slave to a need for success, to a materialistic culture, to exploitive employers, to parental expectations, or to all of the above. These slave masters will abuse you. If you're not disciplined in the practice of Sabbath rest, Sabbath is a declaration of freedom. Did you, did you hear the connection in Deuteronomy? Let's go back. Remember that you were slaves, but God brought you out. You're free now. You're not enslaved by Pharaoh or the Egyptian anymore. You are one of God's now. Therefore, you can rest. Because God is your ultimate master. The chains of slavery have been broken. Now you can rest because God is your good and gracious master. So in a similar way, today... When you rest, it's a declaration of freedom that you have in Christ. You are no longer a slave to materialism. You're no longer a slave to self-justifying yourself. You are free and redeemed in Jesus. Let's do a diagnostic question. Can you walk away from your work? Can you walk away from your studies? If not, could it be that you're a slave to your work and you're a slave to your studies? 
And even though you might with your lips say, oh, Christ is Lord, he's my master, with your life you're declaring something else. We don't rest because we're a slave to our idols. Or to say it positively, only those who are free in Christ can really rest. And Jesus invites us into that rest, a rest that is in the heart that transforms the heart and then overflows into a life in which you can literally rest. Remember in Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. In other words, we can rest from our work because of Jesus' finished work. Like, you can be secure in your identity that is not hitched to your work because of your identity in Christ. You may not have all the things in the world, but you have Christ, and that's enough to give you a hope and meaning and purpose. See, in the gospel, Christ comes and dies and rises again so to forgive you from sin, but gives you a new identity in which you can literally rest, and that manifests itself in literally resting and being able to, to walk away from your work, walk away from your studies at the appropriate time, and say, these don't define me. Christ defines me. What you think of me doesn't define me. Christ defines me. All that I have doesn't define me. Christ defines me. But only if you're free in Christ are you able to do that. Only those who are free in Christ can actually rest. If we're slaves to this world, you will never rest. You'll be on this treadmill of merit, this hamster wheel of societal uh, escalation that will crush you and kill you and work you into the ground. Clearly, this is a very different paradigm from the world. And so there's something meaningful about it to the witnessing world, the watching world. I mean, think about back in the day, agricultural land. Joe Israel takes a day off. He just moved in, Joe. What are you doing? You take, well, God told us to take a break. you got to work. Are you crazy? He'll take care of us. In a similar fashion today, when you take a break, what are you doing? Don't you want to get ahead? Don't you want to climb the corporate ladder? Don't you want to get uh, th that perfect grade? Well, yeah, but I, I think God will take care of me. And if I get that, a minus, if I get that, if I don't get the promotion, I'll be okay. But my life is not tied to that. My life is hidden in Christ. There's something very evangelistic, or at least curious, to the watching world. So let's talk about this practically. What does this look like? First thought, resting from work takes work. It's heart work, but it's also hard work. We just have to be honest about that. One author writes this, Most people mistakenly believe that all you have to do to stop working is not work. The inventors of the Sabbath understood that it was a much more complicated undertaking. You cannot downshift casually and easily. That is why Puritan and Jewish Sabbaths are so exactingly intentional. The rules did not exist to torture the faithful. They were meant to communicate the insight that interrupting the ceaseless round of striving requires a surprisingly strenuous act of the will, one that has to be bolstered by habit as well as by social sanction. In other words, what she's saying here is, look, if you're on board, you're like, oh, I gotta, I gotta take a break unto God. You cannot just downshift just like this. You've got a plan for this, and you've got to work so that you don't have to work on that one day. What does this look like? Let's take a, here's the quote again. Let's take a look at what this looks like. What does it look like to, to downshift? There, there's three ideas I think are helpful. And the idea of stopping, resting, and delighting. We've seen that in Genesis. 
uh, stops from his work, he rests, and he's delighting in what he has made. And w- w- what does this idea of delighting mean? What nurtures your soul? When you take a day out, a day off, unto the Lord, an actual Sabbath, what, what, what brings you delight? What in creation makes you feel alive? So for some of you, it's going to be like hiking. It's going to be fishing. It's going to be running. For others of you, it's the, it's the gift of food, just the taste, the aroma, the, the savoring of smooth food even now makes your mouth water. For other of you, it's just going to be thinking, reading a good book, watching a, a thoughtful uh, dialogue or a thoughtful article. For others of you, it's creativity, painting, drawing, etc. Here's how this author puts it. On Sabbath, we intentionally look for his grandeur in everything, from people, food, and art, to babies, sports, hobbies, and music. In this sense, contemplation is an extension of delight. We are intentional about looking for the evidence of God's love in all the things he has given us to enjoy. So remember that picture that we saw of God in Genesis 131. God steps back and says, everything is very good. And so on this day of Sabbath, you're stopping from your normal work, you're resting, and you're looking and you're thinking, what are things that God has given to us as gifts that we can delight in? Okay, that's the what. Well, when? What does this look like in terms of the when? Well, God gives certain rhythms in our lives. One of them I think we're pretty familiar with. It's called day and night. And we work typically during the day, and God calls us to rest. And so we don't typically call it a Sabbath per se, but it's kind of a mini Sabbath. You're resting at night, and you're not sustaining your life. You're trusting God to sustain your life. You're not working. You're ceasing from your labors. And so there's a little sense in that. And so there's a daily rhythm of of rest. But particularly what you're looking at here is this kind of weekly rhythm of rest. And it's a great contrast, as one author puts, to the secular rhythm of rest. Let me show you this graph here, or this picture here. Versus the secular rhythm of rest and the sacred rhythm. See if this resonates with you at all. He suggests that the secular rhythm of rest looks something like this. Work, 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 vacation. Work, 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 vacation. And maybe you felt that yourself. Like you've been working to the bone and it's just like you just, okay, six more weeks, five more weeks, four, three. And you're like, boom, I'm vacation. And it's just like, and maybe you're a student, same thing. You start and just going, going, going. And the winter break, finally. And the big one, summer break, oh, summer school. And so anyway, this happens, and it's real. In contrast, Scripture suggests more of a manageable rhythm. Sabbath, work. Sabbath, work. Sabbath, work. Work six days, rest one. And so let me suggest something that might be radical, but at least plant a seed in your mind. What if we employed this? What if Sunday was a day of rest, like legitimately rest and worship and delighting in God's gift of seeing one another, worshiping together? So what if your Sundays were like this? You come and you worship, and hopefully we have lunch again, and we have lunch again together, and you hang out, and you watch football, and it's just, it's completely just, Sundays just set apart. Like even if you're a student, like you didn't study on Sundays, because you did the work beforehand, don't worry, you do the work beforehand. It's all good. But you just had Sundays as a day off. Like, how would that change the vibe of your week and as you build up the vibe of your life? Maybe you wouldn't be so harried because you, I got to do everything in six days and Sunday is completely open for worship, for community, for fellowship, for food, etc. For things that, you know, bring life to my soul so that, you know, your soul's not dead by the time you get to winter break. But rather, there's this weekly rhythm of rest. 
So there's that daily, there's that weekly rhythm, but there's also this kind of sense of a, of a seasonal or special uh, rhythm of rest. And this is where we come back to the text here. If you look at Leviticus 23, we won't read all of it, but there's three festivals talked about here that the people of God were supposed to observe. And part of these festivals are, hey, don't do any work right now. We kind of have something similar today. It's like a holiday. Oh, it's Labor Day, no school, maybe no work, etc. But there's a sense in which there's these festivals here. There's also, in Leviticus 25, something a little bit even more extreme. Let me read you two texts here. Leviticus 25, verses 1 to 4, there's actually a Sabbath year. The Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I'm going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years, sow your fields. And for six years, prune your vineyards and gather their crops. Verse 4. But... In the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath of the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. So in other words, God said, hey, after six years, like, you take a break, that seventh year. You don't prune, you just, you're just, it's a Sabbath year. Now, that sounds kind of crazy, but I thought of maybe something that's similar. Like, there's this thing called a gap year. Some students, after particularly think after high school, I take a gap year, right? And it's just a year of something different. Maybe somewhat similar, but there's an idea here of after six years, you rest. But then, let me show you one more thing in chapter 25. Count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seventh Sabbath year amounts to a period of 49 years. It's early. So seven times seven, 49 years. Okay, so we're cool here. So there's something special that happens now after seven Sabbath years, that is about 49 years. Here's what happens. Have the trumpet sounded ever on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate, here it is, the 50th year, and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family, property, and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow, do not reap what grows of itself, or harvest the untended vines. It's a jubilee. It's to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the field. So in other words, after seven times seven, so 49 years, that 50th year also is this very special year, which it's a year of rest, a year of jubilee. And so you think about the math here, 49 and 50 are two years of like, chill, like you got to rest. This is kind of so crazy, right, in our, our workaholic culture. But that's the picture here. So you have daily rest at night. You have weekly rest on a Sunday. You have seasonal special times of rest. And you have these mega special times the 50th year. So the question for us is, can we model this well? Like I get, there are certainly busy seasons in your life. If you're a medical student in residency, if you're opening a company or something, like there are seasons in which you just got to go, boom. But we can't keep that up for long. Personally, I want to model this well as well. And so I've been trying on, on my day off just to Sabbath and not engage in thinking about church and stuff like that. But also seasonally, special times, I'm trying to model that and live that out well. And so actually, I have a sabbatical coming up. And so from mid-November of this year to mid-March of 23, um, I'll be on sabbatical. Now why? Well, I want to model this well, but also I'm convinced that healthy leaders create healthy organizations. And so I want to be healthy. The best gift that I can give you is a healthy, holy me. So therefore, I want to kind of 
Use this time to deal with hard issues, to cultivate trust, to cultivate humility, to realize this church will be absolutely fine if I'm not here because this is God's church and he will care for this church. Recently, I received um, a gift, and it's a very fine gift. It's a cup, and it's a, it's a mug, and it holds water, and you can drink, and it's been flawless since I got it. I noticed, actually, someone in my growth group noticed that this cup was actually trolling me for months. It's been sitting on my desk, and it's actually been trolling me, but actually, as trolls sometimes are, there's actually some truth in this. It kind of pointed out a hard issue I need to deal with. Let me show you the cup. Here's a picture of the cup. Oh, Pastor, very nice, very kind. It can hold water and other beverages. If you zoom in, so if you can't quite see, it's a nutritional fact, and it's like saying all these you know, nice things about love. It's, oh, it's full of this. But I noticed, actually, again, someone in my growth group noticed this. Let me zoom in. You see that? It says pride, 100%. And I was like, huh? Because biblically speaking, pride is not something you want to have 100% of. But I was like, oh, huh? Ooh, right? So it kind of trolled me, but it's actually kind of true. Like, I want to deal with pride in my own heart. And I, because I think there's some truth in that. To my shame, let me share something. During my first sabbatical in 2006, it just kind of shows you this incipient pride. I didn't even know it was there. Uh, I was gone for sabbatical as well back in 06, and I remember telling the coworkers, hey, you know, when in doubt, give me a shout. Like, I wanted to help out. If you need something that I can help out with, just give me a shout. I'll try to help you however I can. I think in, inherent with that was like this idea of, oh, you really need me. So when in doubt, just give me a shout, and I'll help you out. It's like, oh, it's so, like, cringe because it's, like, so... Oh, I'm so, it's an overinflated, it over, overinflated ego type thing, right? My new, and I've told some of you this, my new motto for this next sabbatical is when in doubt, you'll figure it out, right? Because <laughs> right? you have the Holy Spirit, you, have, you don't need me, right? And so there's this picture which I want to, you know, mortify, go against pride, overinflated estimation of myself. And so I want to be healthy in dealing with that. Um, and further, I think this is healthy for the organization, for us as well, because sabbaticals are helpful because it can show when the, the leader is overleading or underleading. Like overleading, like doing things that honestly other people can and should be doing. Like Ephesians 4, my, my role is to equip the saints for ministry. And so my hope is that I come back and people are like, oh, okay, um, there's not much for you to do here because we found people to doing it better than you did. Thank you very much. And I'm like, all right, that's awesome. That's a win for everyone. But there might be areas where I'm currently underleading, I'm underserving, and I come back and I'm like, ooh, hey, we probably need some more e- equipping in this area. So it's healthy in that. So, so what am I going to be doing for this sabbatical? In the past, it was very clear. My first sabbatical, I started grad school, which was very regimented. You go to this class, and there's a syllabus, and you just do, do the work. Um, second sabbatical, I actually got a grant from the Lilly Foundation. We moved to Taiwan for four months. I went to school again to, to try to learn Mandarin. And that was just kind of very, very clear. And so it was very, everything was very regimented for the first two sabbaticals, which upon reflection was also kind of stressful. Like grad school can be stressful. Um, in retrospect, moving to a country which you don't speak the language with three little kids can kind of be stressful. <laughs> Found that one out. Um, so for this sabbatical, I have a list of, of ideas I've been putting down. But honestly, I'm kind of going into it with open hands. Like, God, what do you, what do you want to, to bring out of my own heart to, to deal with? Um, what are the deeper issues? I'm reminded of, do you remember this quote from Blaise Pascal? He said, all humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Um, the, the idea of 
we want to avoid being confronted by our own thoughts oftentimes. We want to kind of mask over that. We want to distract ourselves by work and play and scrolling through social and stuff. Like, you get home, and what do you do? Turn the news on because you don't want to think about your life. Uh, you scroll through social because you want to procrastinate and not think about college or whatever is next. And so, you know, I, I think going into sabbatical with just open, like, I'm just going to sit here, and what do you want? God kind of is that openness. And honestly, it kind of ties into what you saw back in Leviticus 25. That picture of the Sabbath year or the year of Jubilee. You don't plant, you just kind of, whatever comes up, that's, that's what you do. That's what you deal with. And so metaphorically, I'm kind of going into it with like, okay, what do you want, Lord? Open hands. So let me finish with two questions for you as we think about the application of sabbatical. Number one, are you willing to give up control? Are you willing to declare through rest that you have limits? Are you willing to declare through rest that you don't control everything? Are you willing to declare through rest that you trust God to provide? Are you willing to declare through rest that work provides for you but doesn't own you nor define you? In short, are you willing to give up control and rest in the Lord? This is very different from the world. You work six days, but are you willing to rest that one because you trust God and he's ultimately in control and you're not? And you declare that by going back. Second, at the same time, are you willing to take control? And what I mean by this is Sabbath takes work beforehand. You've got a plan. It's not simply stopping working. It's rather replacing, um, replacing, it's not simply stopping work. It's rather planning so that you can stop work, stop rest, and delight in what God has done in his creation. And that takes work. It takes a lot of work, if you will, as you move into sabbatical. But are you really, or Sabbath, are you willing to do that? Again, you might be all on board this morning, like, oh, that's great. We should really make, make Sunday different next week. Okay. What are you going to do this week, the next six days, so that Sunday is different? Don't just have it be something you confess with your lips, but your life is not in line with that. Sabbath is an invitation, and Sabbath is a gift, an invitation to rest, to truly rest in the Lord, and a gift that rejuvenates your soul and honors the Lord. So my prayer for us is that God would give us the grace to receive this invitation and live it out in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the rest that you provide in Jesus. And Lord, we, I ask that you would help us to respond positively to Jesus, to receive his invitation, to come to him and find rest, and cease our strivings to justify ourselves before you by what we've done, but rather to rest on the finished work of Jesus. And would that so transform our lives that, among other things, that we would be able to rest, that we would literally be able to rest and pull back, not just for a vacation, but rather unto you, delighting in what you have done and delighting in what you have made. And as we do this, it would not only nourish our souls, but also it would glorify you. Because in the midst of a watching world, someone who rests because they're secure in Christ is very unique, but also very winsome. Lord, help us to move into that in increasing measure by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.